0: You're listening to a message from whitefields community church in northern colorado for more information and audio content visit us at whitefieldschurch.com second kings chapter 4 verse 38 and if you will read with me and elisha came again to gilgal where there was a famine in the land, and as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs, and found a wild vine, and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds, and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. They poured out some for the men to eat, and while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat it. He he said, Then bring flour, and he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men, that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. And a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate, and they had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and that... All the things that you have been speaking to us as a church over these past weeks as we've looked into these books, Lord. And we, we know that this morning you're going to be faithful by your spirit to speak to our hearts what you have to say to us today. And Lord, may we just draw closer to you and just come to know you more and, and deeper this morning as we look into these words. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, 2 Kings chapter four, as we just read, we continue this morning through our series called "Desiring uh, the Kingdom," studying the books of First and Second Kings, and we find ourselves here in Second Kings chapter four, looking at another couple of miracles that were performed by Elisha. Last week, we looked at the story of the Shunammite woman in verses eight through seven, uh, eight through thirty-seven. And if you weren't here with us, you can find all of our sermons up online, Whitefield's Church. Dot com, And you can go there and find them, or you can find them on YouTube, or you can find them on your favorite podcast uh, platforms. Everything is up there, and you're able to uh, download and listen. And we just, you know, share it. If it's, it blesses you, go ahead and just share it online. And uh, so other people can connect with this kind of Christ-centered, gospel-centered content that we are trying to do. And, and you know, at the root of all our desires is the desire for the kingdom of God. You know, throughout our study of First and Second Kings, we have seen so much failure among the kings of Israel. They've, and they failed because they desired control and they felt that they knew better than God. You know, it sounds like the story most of us could tell. It's, it's not until we realize that we, what we really desire is fully found in Jesus and His kingdom and then we, we become truly free to be the people and leaders that God has called us to be. But unfortunately here, the state of affairs in Israel is not good at all at this time. And the kings have failed them. The, the, the priests have failed them. Their, their prophets have failed them. And here we find Elisha as we start here in verse 38 of chapter 4. And our sentence for this week is, uh, in the famine of the body and soul, Jesus tasted death for all of us, and provided himself as the bread of life. In the famine of the soul, of the of body and soul, Jesus tasted death for all of us and provided himself as the bread of life. Just a great succinct way of remembering what we study today so that during our time together, we you know, maybe just try and put put it to memory or or write it down, maybe take a picture of it. You know, if it's in your notes, it's on the YouTube version uh, app if you have that on your phone. And then you can take some time this week just to meditate on it. Let God continue to speak and minister to you throughout the week. And we've been trying to do this with each of these passages, each sermon, having kind of a sentence that kind of represents all that we're trying to look at. And it's just a way of the Lord just kind of being able to bring back those things as he promises he will do. So... In the famine of the body and soul, Jesus tasted death for all of us and provided himself as the bread of life. And so let's start with that first part. We're going to look at three, three parts of that sentence today. And the first part is in the famine of the body and soul. So right here in verse 38... We find Elisha back in Gilgal, and it says there was a famine in the land. And this is most likely the famine spoken of in 2 Kings, chapter 8, uh, 8, 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. So if you just want to turn to the right there in your Bibles, you can read that with me. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, and that was the Shunammite woman we looked at last week, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. This is most likely the famine that is spoken of here in chapter 4. But we're not here, we're not told how long this famine has been going on. We're not told when it started, but we we are told that there is a famine. I think it's fair to say that there was not only a famine of the body, a famine of the land, but there was also a famine of the soul. You know, not not long ago, if you remember, Elijah, who was Elisha's Predecessor had gone against Ahab, king of Israel, and the prophets of Baal, and God had sent down fire from heaven, proving that he was Yahweh, God, the, the, the God of Elijah. He was the one true God. And many of the prophets of Baal that day had been killed. But sadly, as we continued through the, the stories, we, we see that the kings and the people, they have fallen back. They've fallen back into their old ways. And they're, they're, the false prophets have arisen, and, they, and they, they're speaking. They're claiming to speak in the name of the Lord and speaking false things in the name of the Lord. And, and one king of Israel even tried to have Elijah put to death. We read there in 2 Kings 1-3. It's very telling. As, as Elijah is responding to King Ahaziah, he says there in verse 3, he says, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Of course, this didn't go over, over very well with the king, and he tried to have Elijah killed. There was famine in the land, but there was also famine of the soul. Famine in the Bible more often than not is a sign of God's judgment on his people. We already saw Elijah declare it wouldn't rain for 3 years as, as judgment against King Ahab because he had erected an altar uh, an altar here in in of Baal to an altar to Baal there in Israel. And you can read that back in First Kings chapter 16 and 17. Even in the New Testament, we see that famine will accompany God's judgment. We read that in Matthew, and we read that in the book of Revelation. So when we read here in verse 38 that there was a famine in the land, or anywhere in the Bible for that matter, that there, that there is a famine or will be a famine, it's always good just to pause, step back and ask why. If famine is a sign of God's judgment, what is he bringing judgment upon? And what can we learn from that today? There are many reasons throughout scripture, but here specifically in First and 2 Kings, it's mainly because of idolatry. The true God of Israel had been replaced by pagan idols that were powerless and led the people into despicable things, profane worship, profane, and false worship. Yet so many times, the people, they, they would complain to God, well, why are you not speaking to us? Why are you not intervening? Why are you not, why we have famine, God? You know, they, they would complain, why is he not speaking the things that we want to hear? You know, and I know for me today, the, the application is obvious. If, if, if there's famine in my life, if my life seems dry, if God's word seems dry, like it's not speaking or saying anything to me, but I don't feel the, the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, or the, God speaking by His Holy Spirit in my life. It's usually because I've erected some kind of idol in the place of God in my life. Something I worship more, something I'm leaning on more than, than God in my life, something I pour my life into, and I should be pouring my life into the things of God and into Jesus. You know, we were created, you and I, as worshiping beings. Part of our very nature, pouring our lives into people and things is what we, we do every day. We pour our lives into people and things. That's who we are. And when we were saved, we started pouring our lives into heavenly things, into the things of God. The object of our worship changed, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices to God as a reasonable act of worship. you know that verse in Romans 12:1. But we have an enemy that loves to distract us and get us you know pouring our lives back into things that are worthless and if we do this long enough that famine develops in our lives you know famine of the soul we can't hear from God we we don't feel his presence we feel that he is far away and i'm sure you've realized that when we pour our lives into things that are worthless they don't pour back into us do they they just keep taking they just keep taking they just keep taking until we're finally dry We're finally burnt out. But the good news is that Jesus is the bread of life, the living water. And when we turn back to him and put away those worthless things, we do see abundance once again in our lives. Now, if you feel like that you are dealing with famine in your life today, like many of us do, we go through these periods in our lives. But many times it's of our own doing. If you you feel like... You know, you're in a famine today. You maybe take some time today, this week, maybe pray with a friend or somebody and just say, Lord, what is it? Is there something that, that I'm giving attention to that I shouldn't be, that I'm pouring into, that I shouldn't be, that's causing me to be disconnected from you. You know, and not to belabor this point too much, but we see Elisha, he's returning to Gilgal. And Gilgal is significant because it represents separation. That the children of Israel were separated to be set apart for the glory of God and the purposes of God. This is what Gilgal was. And we read in Joshua 5, when the Israelites had crossed over the river Jordan into the promised land, that God ordered that all the men be circumcised again. Because, you know, while they had been traipsing around the desert for 40 years, those that had been born into the desert had not been circumcised So we read in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 5 of Joshua, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal means rolled away. Being separated from the past, they had been separated from the past and separated unto God, you know, and though geographically the Gilgal here that Elisha is returning to, is probably not the one spoken of as Joshua. If you, if you've studied geographical history of that region, you probably realize that there's probably three or four towns that were named Gilgal back in those days, but it would have been significant just to the fact that it would have been significant because the people would have realized what the word Gilgal, the town meant. It would have been a reminder to the children of Israel that they were set apart as the people of God. Of course, it's a great reminder to us that we have been separated from the past by the blood of Jesus, shed on our behalf and separated unto God for, the, for his purposes and his glory. Now, another significant thing about Gilgal, that's, this is where Elisha became the apprentice to Elijah back there in chapter 2 of 2 Kings. And now we find Elisha, he is now the one, he's no longer an apprentice. He is now the one teaching these hundred prophets here in Gilgal. So the question could be asked, how did Elisha go from being the servant of Elijah to the now the father of the prophets? Was it enough that he had received the cloak of Elijah and, and the anointing of Elijah was the, you know, how was the authority of his message and ministry established in the eyes of these young prophets that now sit under his ministry and learn from him? Well, I think it was through all these miracles that we've been looking at the past few weeks. It started there in chapter 2 when he parted the waters of the Jordan. And he went over on dry land and then we saw him heal the bad waters there near Jericho with salt And here in chapter four, we have seen these four miracles that he has performed. And we're going to look at the last two today. But I see an important principle at work here. And remember last week, Pastor Nick reminded us of this important thought that for every Old Testament story, there is a New Testament principle. For every Old Testament story, there is a New Testament principle. So when we look at all these miracles, including the ones that will follow in the chapters to come, when we take them as a whole, we find, I believe, a biblical precedent that is used throughout Scripture. When God wants to put his stamp on authority on a ministry or on a man, the authority of Elisha's ministry was established through these miracles that we have been looking at. We see this in, in the life of Moses as well, in that, that whole story. God performed miracles through Moses to establish his authority as the one who would lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And of course. The authority of Jesus' ministry and the fact that he was truly the Messiah, the one spoken of by the prophets, that ministry was established by the miracles that he performed. Peter said this of Jesus in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus is Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him, raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The writer to the Hebrews wrote in chapter 2, 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The authority of Jesus as the Messiah was attested to through miracles. And this is what Jesus said even of himself when, when the disciples of John the Baptist came asking, they said, "Is Jesus, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And he replied, he said, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. What about the church, the early church and the ministry of the apostles? Well, it tells us in Acts 5, 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. And then finally in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas, they were speaking to the Jewish council and they related to this council the the signs and wonders that God performed as they took the gospel to the Gentiles as a way of establishing authority for their ministry to the Gentiles. And of course, the obvious question then should follow to us, should Christians expect miracles today? Should we expect miracles in the church today? And the answer is a resounding yes God is still working miracles amongst those in the church today. And what would be the purposes of such miracles? Well, first and foremost, to, to prove that God is the one the true God. Secondly, to give evidence that the gospel is true, to, to bring help to those who are in need, to remove obstacles from ministry, and most of all, to bring God, glory to God. This is the purpose, and God is still doing it. But I think it's important to know that the events that, we, that are recorded for, for us here in the book of, of Kings and also in the book of Acts took place over many years. It was not kind of a, a miracle day, keeps the doctor away kind of thing, you know. But I think it, it reminds us that we are not to get caught up in the miracles, but in the miracle worker, Jesus That's what we want to be caught up into. Seek first his kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. Not forgetting that the greatest miracle was the redemption accomplished by Christ on our behalf. You know, there's a story in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends out 72 disciples to let people know that the kingdom of God had come near. And we read this in verse 17 of Luke chapter 10. It says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents serpents, and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We'll always be praying here that God brings miraculous healing, and he does. And we'll always be praying that God brings provision here, and he does. But most of all, we will be praying for the miracle of salvation for all those that hear his word. And I pray that that miracle happens here today if somebody does not know his word and the message of the gospel. And that brings us to the second part of our sentence. In the famine of the body and soul, Jesus tasted death for all of us. Now, here we get into the first of the two miracles in this last section. And then just read again here in verse 38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal where there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out in the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered, f- and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the, into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. So the bad stew, you know, kind of looks like a bad episode of Hell's Kitchen with Gordon Ramsay, right? Or whatever cooking show you might watch. You know, it was a bad day. And, you know, it's probably dinner time. Elisha's you know, asking, you know, hey, let's get dinner ready. Let's get the pot on. We got to get all these guys fed. It's been a day, a great day of teaching. Everybody's tired. We want to eat. And one of these prophets, he heads out into the field to gather herbs and bring things in for the stew. And unknowingly, he, he gathers up this whole lap full of wild gourds and he cuts them into the stew. And this, of course, leads to the outcry, Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. And now I'm sure you're all dying to know what wild gourds are. And I'm here this morning to enlighten you. But all of this can be found on WebMD, so you don't have to take my word for it. But wild gourds, they're also known as bitter apples or bitter cucumber, or most commonly known, like the, the scientific term is colocynth I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's it's a herb that is used uh, for medicine. Today it's used in small doses to treat diabetes, high cholesterol, constipation, tuberculosis, and gallbladder ailments. You know, the things that you learn at church. So if you're homeschooled today, kids, this is your health hour for the next week. So now before you run off to Walgreens to stock up on your wild gourds, I'm sad to say that it has been banned by the FDA, Uh, probably for good reason. But taking even small amounts of cholecynth can cause severe irritation of the stomach, and intestine lining, bloody diarrhea, kidney damage, bloody urine, and inability to urinate. And if that doesn't kill you, there are convulsions, paralysis, and then finally death. So, unfortunately, our characters in the story here, completely without the essential government regulation that we have and the help of WebMD, they, they cut, you know, a whole lap full of this stuff into their pot of stew. But it seems that there was someone in the group that had the necessary taste buds and knowledge to know that something was not kosher in this pot. And so this cry goes out to Elisha and and his solution is to throw flour into the pot and all is well. And nothing is wrong with the stew. Now, some have tried to suggest that the flour neutralized the effects of the wild gourds there. I couldn't find any medical evidence for this. There is none. I wouldn't advise doing it if you find yourself in such a predicament. this was a miracle, just like Elisha throwing salt into the water to purify it. That was a miracle. This was a miracle. So, what is the application for us this morning about this story about a young prophet who really doesn't know his herbs and he's almost wiped out an entire group of his fellow colleagues and prophets? What are we to learn from it this morning? Well. I think we could take this miracle in light of, of all the others Elisha performed as yet maybe another notch on his belt of authority as the successor to Elijah, and we could be done with it and we could move on. But if we look closer, and I think we, we can find some New Testament principles from this Old Testament story, and the, the one that came to my mind is from 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan never misses an opportunity to bring harm or even death to those who call themselves followers of Christ. Whether that is accusation, whether that is persecution, or even just a big bad pot of poisoned stew. Say that three times really fast. They had, this had the potential to be devastating to the cause of God. And that, that remnant that did not bow to Baal, a hundred men and possibly their families in the midst of a famine, suffering from dysentery, very little water, devastated by sickness. But God intervened here through the miracle of Elisha. You know, even people of faith, those who follow the Christ, those followers of God, you know, they can we can walk ourselves into bad situations, can't we, without even recognizing it, just out of pure ignorance many times, just being unaware. You know, we're, we're all susceptible to getting ourselves into trouble from time to time and some of us more time to more time. You know, and so what is our response when that happens? You know, do we, do we live fearful lives, you know, being anxious all the time? Do we need to go out and get a PhD in herbology? No, it's to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, as Hebrews 12, 2 tells us. That same Jesus, this same Jesus that tasted death for everyone, as it says, tells us in Hebrews 2, 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This same Jesus that said, the work that I have begun in you, I will bring to completion, as Philippians 1, 6 tells us. When I read the story, I I was wondering to myself, who is the first to taste that stew? Who is the first one to the pot, believing that the flour had worked? Or did they believe in the authority of Elisha as the prophet of God? and that God had worked a miracle through him. How much more can we believe in the authority of Jesus who tasted death on our behalf, so we would not have to? Our salvation does not depend, thankfully, on signs and wonders, but on the very person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is dedicated this morning to finishing the work of salvation that he has begun in the lives of each one of you and in me. We can lay our anxieties and our fears at the foot of that great truth this morning. In the famine of the body and soul, Jesus tasted death for all of us. Now, as we look at this last miracle, we come to the final part of our sentence for today. In the famine of the body and soul, Jesus tasted death for all of us and provided himself as the bread of life. So let's just read that starting verse 42. A man from Baal, Shalisha, bringing the man... A man came from Baal, Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord. They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate, and they had some left according to the word Of the Lord, so we are introduced to this man. We don't know his name. We're not told who he is, just that he came from this town of Baal Shalisha and that he had brought the first fruits of his harvest as a gift, as a sacrifice to Elisha. Baal Shalisha can be translated as Lord or Master of three things, or the third idol or the third husband or that governs or presides over three, if you like your, you know, studying names. But some say that this was the capital of the worship to the false god Baal there in the northern kingdom of Israel. Needless to say, we probably could conclude that he had traveled from this openly pagan town, this openly uh, uh, godless city to deliver this gift to Elisha. Now, Deuteronomy 18 tells us that the, that the first fruits, the feast of the first fruits were reserved for the priests and for the Levites. And we can con- probably conclude from that based on what we have already read here uh, in First and Second Kings that the, the priesthood of the northern uh, kingdom was in shambles. It was corrupted, it was probably apostate, and very few were probably following the law of God, unfortunately. So, this man in obedience from a pagan city, follower of God, obviously knew the law of God and wanted to honor those he believed to be the true caretakers of the worship of the true God at that time. And so he brings the sacrifice, the first fruits, to Elisha. Now, before we go on, I just want to look briefly at the significance of the first fruits. Again, This is a term not only confined to the pages of the Old Testament, but is a principle that is found all throughout Scripture. And I think it's an important lesson for us this morning. Uh, In the Old Testament, the first fruits could also be considered the tithe and and the tenth. And this is something that God took really, really seriously. It was not confined always to fruit, uh, you know, and grain, but also your offspring as well in some things that we know Exodus 22 verse 29 uh, God says you shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage the firstborn of your son shall be given uh, shall you give to me you shall not delay says the Lord Exodus 2319 you shall bring the choice uh, first fruits or the best of your soil into the the house of the Lord your God Leviticus 2730 every tithe or tenth of the land whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. And then if we look at the book of Malachi, we look at uh, the prophet Malachi shows that, you know, when we read that, we show, it shows that there's, this is a point of contention between God and his people throughout the generations and a, a source of the famines, a source of judgment of, of God upon his people that ravaged the lands. And we read there in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, Through twelve, for I for I the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need, I will rebuke the devourer, and probably devour is probably like locusts and those kind of things that would eat. Uh, eat the land for you. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God says, test me, test me. He lays a challenge at their feet. I believe he lays a challenge at our feet as well. What was God trying to do through this law? What is he trying to teach us? I think it's, we're not to depend on the work of our hands for provision, the work of our own own hands, but on God and God alone. We're not to hoard what God has given us, but to give and to give the best and to give without delay. Now, you and I, we're not under the law of Moses as members of the New Testament church. Jesus fulfilled that law. He, he is actually referred to as the first fruits of those who have been made alive through the salvation he won for us on the cross. This victory of death represents the great harvest that will follow as people return to Christ, Jesus, the first, Jesus, the best and the greatest. But we are called in the New Testament to be generous givers. Our giving should represent our heart for where our treasure is. There your heart will be also a tithe or a tenth is a it's a great place to start in the New Testament. But in the New Testament, it's only to be the beginning. I'm not just talking about finances. This is a lifestyle. It is a spiritual discipline that shapes our thinking and shapes our life. Giving God the best, the first, rather than the leftovers. And this reveals the order of the priorities in our very own lives. And I love this quote from John Corson. He said, giving or tithing is not God's way of raising money. God doesn't need us to raise him money. It's God's way of raising money kids. Many years ago, I, the story was told to me by a pastor friend of mine of somebody in his own church. And this gentleman, he was a, a professional pianist. Uh, that's what he did. Solo piano player, did solo concerts for a living. And um, he wanted to get the church a piano. So he was going to give the church his piano. It was a very, very nice piano, very, very expensive. And he was going to buy himself a new piano. And he just felt that the Lord tell him, I want you, you to buy the church the new piano and uh, and give the church the new piano. And it was a $100,000 piano. And he bought it and he gave it to the church. Two weeks later, he died of a heart attack and went to be with his Savior. And that church is still, that piano is still there. And every time I visit the church, I get to play it. And I'm always reminded of this man and, and his obedience to the word of the Lord and his life. And... And the fact that he just gave the best and he gave it right away. And then the Lord took him. It was, you know, all the things together. It's just a, you know, take from it what you will. But just when I read this, I just reminded of that story. But I do find it interesting that in the midst of a famine, this man still brought his gift of the first fruits to Elisha. I don't know if you caught that. In the midst of a famine, this man still brought his gift of the first fruits to Elisha. This seems so counterintuitive to us, right? But what is God's promise? Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. You know, we experienced our own form of famine here when we first moved into this building. You know, the decision to move here was not taken very lightly. There was a lot of prayer. There was a lot of supplication. We went, we want to be good stewards, we we'll would be good stewards of what God has given us, but we felt that the memorial building that had been the home of this church for 12 plus years had outlived its usefulness. And so in March, Pastor Nick, he signs the lease to this place as he's heading to the airport to meet me in the Ukraine and with the hopes that when we return, we'll be kicking off the next chapter in the life of Whitefields Community Church with a packed house, worshiping the Lord together. Well, we all know what happened next other than the fact that the two of us almost got stuck on the other side of the world. So here we are with a building that's costing us 10 times and more in rent, with no people walking through those doors. If you want a horror story to a pastor, just recount that to him. Because I'm sure many of you are aware that you're the ones that pay the bills around here. It's through your tithes and offerings, your generous giving unto the Lord in worship that pays the rent and makes the work and ministry that we do through this church possible. That keeps our our missionaries out on the mission field preaching the gospel, doing the essential work that they've been called to do. But can I tell you a secret? Let you in on a little secret. In the midst of our famine of uncertainty, and doom and gloom, and not sure what the future holds that plagued us for the past few months, and still, of course, plagues us now. The giving in this church actually went up. The giving in this church actually went up. You were giving the first fruits in the midst of a famine. People who had lost their jobs were still giving the first fruits in the midst of a famine. People who we didn't even know didn't even go to this church (laughs) were just sending money to us. God was providing. It was miraculous. And through all that, God has blessed us immensely. Test me, says the Lord. Test me. He has multiplied our expectations. God obviously has a plan for this church and is using you to fulfill his purposes and his plans, even in the midst of such great uncertainty. And we just give him all the glory and say, thank you, Lord. Your will be done. Continue to use us for your glory continue to provide as you have done. We just we're just, you know, in awe of all that God has done. And isn't that what we see here in this last story before us? God takes the sacrifice of first fruits by this man in obedience in the midst of a famine and he multiplies it out to feed his people to meet their needs and meet them in abundance and meet them beyond their expectations, multiplying their expectations. Honestly, I I had the same reaction as that servant, you know, when he kind of pushed back against Elisha, he's like, you want me to do what? Put the small amount of food in front of these hundred hungry men, you know? I don't think so. That's crazy, you know? Here, I remember when we we were supposed to have our first service here on March 29th, and you know, I'm looking at the budget and the doom and gloom on TV and, you know, empty seats in front of us. And Lord, what's your play here? Lord, what's, what's your plan? But God has multiplied our expectations and then some. Test me, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God is in the business of multiplying our expectations, bringing provision to us in the midst of famine over and over and over again. And of course, the greatest parallel to this story is Jesus feeding the 5,000. I'm sure many of you saw that as we were reading, you know. Here again, a, a bunch of flustered disciples, you know, as Jesus asked them, hey, you feed them. They're like, 5,000 people, five loaves and two fish that wouldn't even keep an average teenager at bay these days. You know, Jesus takes what they have and he multiplies it out to meet the need in abundance. This is what God does over and over and over again. This is what my God does over and over again. This is what your God does over and over again. We, We cried for mercy and he says, I will give you grace. We're not only saved from certain death, but saved to everlasting life in the presence of God. You know, we say, Lord, make me a servant. And God says, I will make you my child. Always multiplying our expectations, bringing provision in the midst of famine. And ultimately it was Jesus, the bread of life, who tasted death for all of us, who by his blood brought us near becoming our peace, breaking down that wall of hostility that lay between us and the Father. In him, we will never thirst again. In him, we will never hunger. In him, we will never die. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand together. And Sean's going to lead us in communion this morning. Lord, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, we just stand in awe of all that you have done just over these past few months. We say thank you. We say, glory be to your name, Lord. We're humbled in in your presence to be a part of what you're doing and to be the recipients of such great provision in these times, Lord. And we want to be good stewards, Lord. We want your gospel to go out far and wide. The miracle of the gospel, Lord, to go out far and wide and reach your people. And Lord, we say, do it, Lord. The power is in your word, let your word go out in power and not re- return until it's accomplished what you have set it out to accomplish as you have promised. And we thank you. we give give you honor in Jesus name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.